following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' instructions to his disciples and to the crowds about what how they are to live in his absence. As you know, Jesus has been physically absent from the earth for 2,000 years, and we live in expectation, and every generation of Christians live in expectation of his coming. And in this particular passage, Jesus uh, tells his disciples, primarily teaches them about how they are to face this time and how do they live through this time, because he's headed towards Jerusalem. And uh, they know that Jerusalem is the wrong place for him to go because that's where he's going to be arrested and he's going to be uh, beaten and spit upon and crucified. And yet um, he's going there for a purpose. In the Old Testament, when it pictures this, Jesus heading for Jerusalem, it says he set his face like flint and he headed towards Jerusalem and his disciples were all afraid because they knew what he was going to face when he got there. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 12, let me read to you from... uh, Luke chapter 12, we'll begin in verse uh, 33, actually. This is kind of going back a, a verse or so over what we covered the last time. And notice these words. This is what Jesus tells them. Sell your possessions and give to charity or give to the poor. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. In other words, you're investing in something that's eternal, is what he's saying. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed in readiness. Now he's going to tell them this is how you're supposed to live during his absence as we await his return. Jesus uh, does something, in fact, in this passage. He tells them that I'm going to return when you least expect it. And uh, he says, blessed, uh, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. In other words, when the master goes to a, a wedding feast, it usually lasts late into the night. He might come home uh, at midnight or he might come home at 3 a.m., but they're to be ready to serve him because they are his servants. And he says, that's how you ought to be. My followers, his disciples. Verse 37, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. He's going to come back and serve them just the way Jesus did at the Last Supper, if you remember. When he got up from the table, girded himself about with a towel and washed the disciples' feet. That was the lowliest act. That was, that was what only the lowliest slave would do. And he washed all their feet. And he says, this is what will happen if, if the servants are ready. When the master comes home, he will come and gird himself and serve them and have them recline at table. And he will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch, which is 9 p.m. to midnight, or even the third watch, which is midnight to 3 a.m., and finds him so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. In other words, he's telling them, you need to be watchful, just like a homeowner is watchful, over his household so that if he, he won't be surprised if somebody tries to break into his house. 
You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Because there were many other people there besides his disciples. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of the other servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave when his master finds him doing when he comes. In other words, if he is following his instructions and doing what he said, he will be blessed by his master when he comes home. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions because he's faithful. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will, not, will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces. That is, it's an expression that simply means he's going to do him in and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. In other words, the one who knows what he's supposed to do and doesn't do it is the one who's in big trouble. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. He's talking about his crucifixion. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I come to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members of one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. Why was that? Because it was coming from the Mediterranean Sea. And so they, if they saw clouds coming from the, the Mediterranean Sea, they knew it would bring showers. And so it turns out, he says, and when you see a south wind blowing that is up from Egypt, from the desert, you say it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. They were probably a lot more accurate than uh, our weather casts today. <laughs> you hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is telling them how they're to live. There's a, there's a passage in 1 Chronicles 12.32, I'm sure you've heard this before, where the, he describes the sons of Issachar, and he says that they are men who understand the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. It's always a wonderful thing when the people of God have men who are able to who understand the times and can tell God's people what they ought to do. Why did they need to understand the times? 
Why was this so crucial? Well, here's why. Let me show you this. This is in chapter 18 of Luke. In chapter 18 of Luke, which is a a little bit, they're almost to Jerusalem. They're down in Jericho, headed towards Jerusalem. And so Jesus lets them in on something they need to understand. It says, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished. And all you got to do is go back and read uh, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, and you'll see what was prophesied about what Jesus was going to go through. He says, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. That is Jesus. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after that, they have, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now that's the gospel. It's really good news, but notice what happens. Notice how they respond. It says, but the disciples understood none of these things. It didn't fit their assumptions about Jesus as the Messiah, that he was going to be beaten and killed and hung on a cross and then then, uh, put into a grave and then raised from the dead. They understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. That's kind of encouraging in a sense because there's so many times when we read the word of God, we hear the word of God and we don't understand what it's saying. Well, the disciples had this problem and they showed it several times and sometimes I hear people saying, how could they be so dumb? How could they be so blind? The same way we can be. I mean, when you hear what Jesus has commanded us about how we are to live and so forth, uh, it's a good question. Are we, do we understand what he's commanded us? I mean, what did he mean by sell your possession gives to those who are poor? Well, what he was talking about was life in the body of Christ. This is exactly what you heard in Acts 2. That's exactly what they did. They understood that they were one body, that they were the people of God. They were the people of Christ. Now, to his disciples, he's going to teach, and then he's going to talk to the crowd who have not yet received him. And notice what he says to the disciples. First of all, he says, be ready to welcome me. Just like these servants welcome the master who comes back from the wedding feast, he said, I want you to live in such a way that when I come, you will be prepared to welcome me. You'll be living in expectation of Christ's coming. Jude tells us, in Jude, I think it's about verse 20, Jude tells us that the way that we can keep ourselves fixed in the atmosphere of God's love for us, one of the things we're to do is to live in earnest expectation, joyful anticipation of the coming of the mercy of the Lord in the person of Christ when Jesus comes back. Jesus could come back today. They may never get this heater fixed, but you'll be fine. Because Jesus really is coming back. And so he says, you should be like these servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding feast. We're supposed to live in expectation that Jesus is coming. And then he says, the second thing he says to his disciples is, be serving one another. Like a good steward, serve your fellow servants. I think it's, in, it's uh, significant that he says this to Peter. Peter says, are you saying, have you given this illustration for us or for everyone? When he, when he said this about uh, the steward, the person who's in charge of the other, who's leading the other servants, 
and supposed to take care of them because this is exactly what Peter was assigned. If you remember, when Jesus restored him after he had denied Jesus three times and Jesus restores him, he says to him, do you love me? Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord. And he says, feed my lambs. Then he said, feed my sheep. And then he said, tend my sheep. In other words, you have to be centered on the needs of my people. That's why I saved you. That's why I made you one of my disciples. And so we're there to be serving one another. And then finally, the third thing he says to them is, understand my work. Understand my work. And he mentions three things that make up his work. The first thing is, he's going to be crucified. He said, I have a baptism to undergo. It's a baptism that's going to end up in his death on the cross for us. This is an amazing truth. You know, this is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus came into the world to save us by taking our place. Why was it necessary for the the eternal Son of God to become a human being, to live as a human being, to come into this world? It was so that he could stand in our place and set us free by being a substitute and taking the full blow of God's judgment against sin. And then secondly, he says, during this, is, the, being crucified is imminent. That is, it's going to take place at any time. Uh, imminent is a, uh, an imminence is a homonym. It's, there are three different words, three different meanings, and they're spelled differently, but these words, often we get them mixed up. We hear about the imminent domain. When uh, people see certain important people and they call them your imminence, it's the word that means they're on the top of the heap. They're the most important person. That's not this word. This word means there's nothing between now and when I am going to be crucified. It's imminent. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going to die within months on the cross and then be raised from the dead. But secondly, he says something strange than that. He's going to be dividing households. I thought the way it's supposed to work is that God was supposed to save everybody in your family and all your children would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and be part of this. Why is this division taking place? And he mentioned specifically in families there'd be three against two or two against three. I can remember when, you're back in the, whatever that was, the 70s, I suppose, when uh, Bob, Bob Dylan made his profession of faith and his closest friends rejected him. Joan Baez was one of his close friends and she hated the fact that he did this. And he wrote a song about it and about this kind of a reaction to him. And the song, in the song, the line is, you got something better. He's talking about how they ridicule Christians. But he says, but you got something better. You have a heart of stone. You're unaffected by the truth of the gospel. Well, this is how it happens. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that throughout this age, this is going to happen throughout this age that we're in now, these last days. In families, there are going to be people who come to faith in Christ, and there are going to be those who reject Jesus. And the, the amazing thing is that when people reject Jesus, they don't just say, well, I'm glad it's, that's really nice for you, but I don't think it's for me. Instead, they oppose you. They fight you. And so he says, I'm going to be dividing households until he returns. Sometimes it really tests our commitment, doesn't it? Somebody was telling me about a friend who became a Christian and was part of a group that got together all the time and partied and 
And he said uh, that he just stopped. He, he would come, but he wouldn't join in. And so he was asking about him, and they said, oh, he's a Jesus freak. You know what a Jesus freak is? It's somebody who gets saved, and nobody can figure them out. Their old, their old friends can't figure them out because they have come to love Christ above all things. It's amazing to me how the Bible, without a, a, any apology, tells us that we're to be so committed to the Lord Jesus Christ that there is nothing in all of life that we would not give to him or give for him because he's more valuable than anything. In Second um, Corinthians 4, 6 is where I've, mentioned, I've quoted this several times when it says that the God who said let there, let there be light has caused the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine into their hearts, into your hearts. But the very next verse he says, and we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What treasure? The treasure of knowing Christ. The treasure of knowing Christ is the greatest treasure that you could ever imagine. It's supernatural. A person can't just decide, oh, I want to know Jesus. It's as a result of the work of the Spirit of God opening their eyes to the glory of Christ. And it's a treasure that you have. If you're sitting here this morning in this cold, cold room, sitting on those cold, cold chairs, and you have Christ, you have been blessed beyond any way to measure it. If you have Christ, if your eyes have been opened to Christ, and you have seen God's glory in the face of Christ, and you've believed on him, you have this treasure. What does he mean in earthen vessels? He means we just, we, Paul meant, we have this, this treasure of knowing Christ in these these physical bodies in this, in this, I'm just a human being. And I have this incredible treasure of knowing God, knowing Christ, coming to have my eyes open to the glory of Christ. It's the greatest thing that ever happens. There's nothing like watching a person come out of darkness into light. It's just an amazing thing that they come out of total darkness into the light of the glory of Christ. And they see in the face of Christ, they see the glory of God and believe upon him. And then he mentions one other thing that's going to happen, and that is he's going to cast fire on the earth. This is talking about when he returns at the second coming. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 describes it in very vivid terms. He's going to, he's going to pour out. What is he doing? He's purifying the earth because the kingdom of God is coming to, to the earth in its fullness. And so he says, you need to understand what's going on. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and they're following along with him. And he's going to be crucified and buried and resurrected. And because he is the object of our faith, he's going to divide families. There are going to be those who believe upon him and those who do not. Now, I'm not saying give up. There's no use praying for them. I'm saying this happens. This is why we have these kind of struggles. I can remember my mom married my dad thinking he was a believer because he was a pastor's son, the best friend of her dad who was a pastor. They got married, and then she discovers he's not a believer. And so for 20 years, she prayed that God would save him. And it was 30 years after they got married that he came to faith in Christ. And so God poured out great grace in her life and saved him and gave him a heart for Christ. And he lived out the rest of his life as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
So yes, we should pray. But don't be surprised when you have those who don't believe the truth of who Christ is oppose you. There will be opposition. And he tells them this. And so this is what he wants them to know, that they should live in anticipation of his coming. That means you, as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, and me, we are to live in anticipation of the coming of Christ. He's coming back. And he says he's going to come when we least expect it. You could write a book about that. He's coming when you least expect it. We've had all these books about the coming of Christ that have been dead wrong. He was supposed to come on a certain date. But we know this, he's going to come when we least expect it. He's returning, and he wants us to live in light of his coming. He wants us to live anticipating his coming back. That's going to be a wonderful day. That is not pictured as something that we should fear as believers. I was reading this, uh, uh, this book. This guy was saying that he had, um, he had put on a big conference, a pastor's conference, and when he looked out over the audience, he saw these, these guys, and he said they, they all looked like, kind of like I felt, like unsure of myself and unsure about all this. And he said, so he came out and he said, would you all bow your head and close your eyes? And then he said this, he asked this question, he said, how many of you are afraid of the rapture? That was the word he used. How many of you are afraid of the rapture? And he said, every hand in the room went up. Every hand in the room. I think a lot of times we hear about the second coming of Christ, and instead of filling our hearts with joy, Jesus is coming? Yes, Jesus is coming. And it should fill your heart with joy if you're a believer. Because he's coming back. And we're going to see him. And it's going to be the greatest joy in all of life when we see him face to face. In fact, um, John in 1 John 3 says that when we see him, we'll be like him. It's going to transform us seeing him. So this is something that we anticipate and we live in anticipation of. We live longing for him to come back. We long to see him face to face. We long to be in his presence. But now he turns to the crowds because Peter said, are you just talking to us or are you talking to everyone? And so in this next section in verses 54 through 56, he says, first of all, you should understand your problem, he says to these unbelievers. Now what was their problem? And the way he puts it is you can analyze the weather, but you're blind to the kingdom coming upon you. Remember, Jesus had been demonstrating the power of the kingdom, and he says the kingdom of God has come upon you. He was casting out demons. He was healing the sick, raising the dead, doing supernatural things, and they saw the power of God right before their eyes. And yet they hesitated. They They had more things they had to... They weren't convinced. And so Jesus tells them, oh, you can analyze the weather. You can tell when there's going to be a, warm, a hot wind or a, or a rain coming from the Mediterranean or, or a hot wind from, from the south, from Egypt. But you can't read the times. You can't see the kingdom of God right before your eyes. And then he says to them, wake up and seize the opportunity. In other words, repent and believe. The Messiah was right there before their eyes. Imagine this. They were experiencing, they saw with their own eyes, the, the Messiah, 
the one who had been promised in, in Psalm 22 and in Isaiah 53, it describes the coming of Christ and what he would do. And they could see from the scriptures that he was the king. He was the Messiah. And they, yet they refused to believe him. And that's why when he says, when he says what he does to them, about what they ought to do. It's kind of, it sounds a little foreign to us when he says, uh, for while you, this is verse 58, for while you were going with your opponent, in other words, they're being sued and they're being taken before a judge, a magistrate. And he says, this is what you ought to do. While you were going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way, make the effort to settle with him before you get before the judge. What's he getting at? There in the presence of the Messiah. They have seen the truth of who he is. And what they should do is repent and believe upon him. So that when they stand before him as judge, they won't be judged. The fire won't fall on them. And he says, if you're smart enough to read the weather, you should be smart enough to read the times and see that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's amazing to us. I, I've heard so many people say, why couldn't they see? Why couldn't they understand? Same reason you can't see and you can't understand at times. We can be blinded because we have these assumptions of the way things are, are going to be. There's a book that somebody put out. I think it was Baylor University. They put this out. They did a study. About 95% of people in America say they believe in God. But there are four different gods they found out. Four they describe their God in four different ways. They're totally uh, disconnected from each other. In other words, there are assumptions they have about what God is like. What is God like? What is he like? You know, some Christians aren't even aware that, that God is a father who wants to have a relationship with you, who wants you to absolutely experience what it's like to be a son of God, a child of God who's loved by his father. And sometimes we can spend years of life thinking that God is very distant and uninvolved in our lives when the fact is he is a father and he's brought you into relationship with him and he wants you to know him. And so he tells them what they should do is take seriously what they're seeing and interpret it as God's provision for them if they would simply turn in faith towards Jesus Christ. Romans 5.9 says that since we were, we were reconciled to God by faith, then certainly we're going to be saved by his life in the future when the judgment comes on the earth, that Jesus is going to save us, his life. He's alive, you know. He's able to save us from judgment. And he's going to save every believer from judgment when judgment falls upon this earth. I think one of the things that we, we ought to think about and know, let me turn you back to, turn back to Matthew for just a second. Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 27. This is a real familiar verse. eleven twenty-seven, And notice what it says. All things that Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills or decides to reveal him. If you know Christ, if you know God, it's because Jesus Christ has opened your eyes to who he is. 
It's supernatural. It's not simply because you grew up in a certain home. It's because the Spirit of God opened your eyes to the glory of Christ. It's, it's this glorious gift that Jesus says we have this treasure, or rather Paul says we have this treasure of knowing Christ in earthen vessels. A friend of mine says, because he's talking about our, we're just physical human beings, and we have this treasure within us. A friend of mine translates it this way. We have this treasure in cracked pots. Earthen vessels are just pottery. But he's talking about our frailty. Isn't it amazing that he's given you this? That he's given, that Jesus has willed to, to open your eyes to who God is? This is the most glorious gift you could ever receive. It's the greatest riches that you could ever receive. And let me tell you, when you share Christ with somebody, when you share the gospel with somebody, you know when you will share the gospel? Let me tell you when you'll share the gospel. You will share the gospel when Jesus is a source of tremendous joy in your life. When you find him to be the sweetest name I know, you know that song, Jesus is the sweetest name I know? When you come to have that kind of affection for him, you're going to talk about him. The reason that Christians don't talk about Christ to unsaved people is because they don't spend any time with him. They don't have any, their heart has not been moved by who he is. You have Christ living in you. He's the one who has opened your eyes who God is. And, under, and you understand that the Father sent him into the world so he could come and live within you. Now, I've never run into anybody who's had the greatest thing in the world happen to them that they don't have to tell you about it. Isn't that true? I remember a family that I knew, and they won, they won the, their, it, was a, it was a relative of them who won the lottery. They won several million dollars. They could not stop talking about that. Let me tell you what you've received. is something that there's no amount of money that you could ever put a price tag on this. This is a glorious gift. It is a treasure. It's a treasure that you've been given when you put faith in Christ. That he made the Father known to you. And that knowledge of God, knowing who God is, having a walk with him, having a relationship with him is the greatest treasure you could ever receive. And when it's like that to you, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start telling people about it. You won't be able not to. You'll find yourself talking about Christ when you didn't even plan to. But it's, it's the thing that's on your heart. And so it has to come out in your words. I don't think the, the big need is, is uh, it's not, a, it's not a, that it's a bad thing to have a class on evangelism and um, talk about techniques and talk about things you can do and what you shouldn't do and all that. That's fine. But I'm telling you, until you love Christ, until you, the reality of what he has done for you has hit you and it weighs heavy upon you, you see the glory of it, that you have this treasure. Yes, it is in an earthen vessel. You're just a human being. You're not a super saint. That's one thing about our church. We have no super saints here, do we? We're just ordinary believers. But we have this treasure. And this treasure, when it really is a treasure to us, becomes a thing that we can't stop talking about. We can't help but tell people about this glorious truth. The reason I love hearing testimonies from people who are still stunned by the reality of what God has done for them in Christ Jesus it stirs your heart, doesn't it? You realize, you know what? I've, I've received the same thing. 
And sometimes I act like it's just old news. It's no big deal. And then you see somebody come to faith and you think, wait a minute, that's exactly what happened to me. I came to have my eyes open to the glory of God and I've been having this treasure in me all these years. And now I have the opportunity to share it with whoever God brings into my life. I've been trying, we've talked about wanting to pray for our building project and all that stuff, and I've been praying that, and what I keep coming back to is this. I want the guys who are involved in building this building to draw closer to Christ. Uh, I had a, I hope Cecil doesn't mind me telling this, but Cecil one time told me that when he was involved in the building, a church building over, it used to be First Baptist Church, it's Grace Bible Fellowship, and it was, a process took a couple years. And he said, it was one of the best things I've ever been involved in because of the fellowship with the men that he was doing the work with. That's what I want to see happen. I want this process, no matter how difficult, how long it takes, is that it will change our lives and make us witnesses for Jesus Christ. Think about this. That we, we're, just a, we're just a small congregation, but did you know that the Bible says that one saint can overcome a thousand enemies and two can overcome 10,000? You know why? Because we have the truth. We have the gospel. We have the truth of the gospel. And God wants to use you as a mouthpiece and as one of his servants who gives away his riches, which is this treasure. You know, one of the things that happened in the early church is they started giving themselves away to one another. You know how it is in our culture. You got, I, I mean, we're all so worried about somebody taking advantage of us, stealing our identity, getting into our bank account, and all that kind of stuff. In the kingdom of God, the economy of the kingdom of God, what God says is give it away as fast as you can and it will be replenished in, in multiple ways. What did Jesus say in John 7, 37? I've quoted this a thousand times. John 7, 37, on the great day of the t- Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus says, it says he spoke with a loud voice. If anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because he who is believing in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you get that? It flows out. This eternal life that you've been given is supposed to flow out of you into the lives of other people. It's a wonderful economy. Just give it away. Give away the gospel. It's free. And the more you give it away, the more you of it you will have in your heart. The more joy you'll have over it in your heart. One of the reasons some Christians are so sour is because they haven't shared the gospel with a person in 20 years. They've never talked to any person about the glory of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so what he wants us to do is give it away. And your joy will increase. You know that passage in 1 Peter 1, 8 when he says, um, Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, you rejoice with joy and expressible and full of glory. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the fact that a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ... I mean, you know, I got to tell you, witnessing to somebody, telling somebody about Christ is the greatest faith-building thing that you can do. It will build your faith. As you tell them the truth of the gospel, you'll believe it more. It convinces you of the truth of it as you share it. 
It's wonderful. And this is what God has called us to do. So before you freeze to death, let me close in prayer. (laughs) And we're going to take communion. And this, uh, hopefully that'll warm you up. Let's pray. Our Father, how grateful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We thank you now as we come to the Lord's table and share the cup and share the one loaf. We are thankful that it's our testimony to you that we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and we have found him the great, to be the greatest treasure in all of life. Thank you for this gift of faith. Thank you for this gift of a Savior. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful. It's so wonderful what you've done for us and what you're doing for us every day as we walk in fellowship with you. Please fill our hearts with the joy of Christ so that it's unmistakable that we have to talk about him. We have to love him. We have to walk with him and find the joy there is in Christ Jesus. And we know that you will use us. And so we pray, Father, give us a commitment. Give us a bulldog commitment to think on Christ, to be filled with joy because of Christ, and then to share him with all those that you bring into our lives. Thank you for all these appointments that you give us, Father. You're constantly putting people in our path that we can share Christ with, and we pray that you would continue to do that, and we would, we would be responsive. We would see it as a great, great opportunity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.